Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. I'm joined by RCD contributor John Waters. Today we're speaking with Michael Gordon, national security correspondent at the Wall Street Journal and author of the new book, Degrade and Destroy, the inside story of the war against the Islamic State from Barack Obama to Donald Trump. Michael Gordon, welcome to Hot Wash. Glad to be here. Uh, Michael, let's start big picture first. You've also written excellent books about the Gulf War, the invasion of Iraq. How was the battle against the Islamic State different from those other conflicts, or should we just see it as all part of the same ongoing story? Well, um, uh, it, there's continuity in the sense that the adversary that the U.S. and its allies confronted in um, the counter-ISIS campaign, um, otherwise known as Operation Inherent Resolve, uh, to those professionals who follow it, um, um, was pretty much the same one as the U.S. fought in during its occupation of Iraq. I mean, ISIS evolved from al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi uh, used to be a figure in AQI, as it was known. Uh, so the Sunni militant threat is a familiar one, although it was very much amped up um, in the case of uh, the counteract when it became the Islamic State in many respects. But it was a very different war uh, from the earlier ones, all, all of which I was in or, or at, um, not as a participant, but as a, as a correspondent. Um, in, it was fundamentally different in many ways. I mean, if you look at Desert Storm, which is the first uh, conflict I did in a book with uh, General Trainer. I mean, that's when the U.S. used its uh, Colin Powell's doctrine of overwhelming force. And it used overwhelming force for rather limited ends, evicting Saddam Hussein's uh, troops uh, from Kuwait and battering uh, the Republican Guard. In, in the second war that I covered, which was the subject of two books that I wrote with General Trainer, Cobra II, and The Endgame, um, the U.S. used something less than an overwhelming force. You will recall that there was a lot of um, back and forth between the Army and Rumsfeld about whether they had enough troops. Um, but the ends were extraordinarily ambitious, overthrowing a government and installing a democratic regime in the heart of Arabia. Uh, in this conflict, what makes it um, really unique, in my view, is you had a very limited U.S. Uh, footprint. The concept from the get-go was to have small teams of American advisors aligned with partner forces who would do the main fighting. But to do this on a rather industrial scale uh, in Iraq, in Syria, tapping into enormous air power and taking advantage of ISR. So it was a very different kind of war uh, than the previous two I had covered, and it, it required um, different sets of strategies and trade-offs. So let's talk about that initial tipping point in the 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 birth of the Islamic State. Um, you you mentioned al Baghdadi, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, and that split from Al Qaeda in Iraq to forming the new what what became Islamic State or ISIL or ISIS. How you know referred to in a bunch of different ways. Uh, you, you have this great kind of talking about um, Major General Mike Nagata, who was there and was observing 
that something different was going on and trying to get uh, Washington really to listen to that. What was different and what was he seeing and, and why was, why was that message not being heeded? Well, first off, um, ISIS didn't, didn't split from AQI. It evolved from AQI. It's the same group, um, uh, rebranded, but with additional capabilities. And in fact, there were intimations of uh, ISIS's uh, pretension to governance in the latter days of AQI in Iraq, because it initially proclaimed itself the Islamic State of Iraq, and it had a administrative uh, structure. But uh, what happened was, um, after U.S. forces uh, left Iraq at the end of 2011, which uh, senior Iraqi generals and senior U.S. generals thought was uh, a mistake from a national security uh, point of view, uh, this group uh, became much more capable. It fed off of the chaos in uh, Syria. It recruited thousands of um, jihadists and uh, repurposed them for the fight in Iraq. It carried out a prison break campaign, which called Breaking the Walls, and broke into Abu Ghraib and Taji and sprung a lot of its own um, uh, comrades. And its tactics became different, too. This was not a... Um, terrorist group whose goal was to set off a car bomb here and a car bomb there and assassinate this or that leader. Uh, they wanted to govern a caliphate and administer a caliphate. And they imported into their um, tactics, really paramilitary tactics in terms of the way they used vehicles with 50 caliber guns and they'd sweep across, you know, the desert. Uh, they're really more of a a terrorist army than uh, a group of isolated terrorists. And that's what Mike Nagata was responding to when he went to Iraq with Chris Donahue of Last Man Out fame in uh, February of 2014. They reported that not only was the adversary more capable, but the Iraqi force that was fighting them, the counterterrorism service, the best of what the Iraqis had at the time, was overmatched. These memos and briefings were set up the chain of command, uh, but they didn't have any effect in Washington because in Washington, the White House was determined to keep uh, Iraq in the rearview mirror. So I want to bring John Waters in. Uh, John Waters was in Iraq in 2014. John, what was your perspective at the time and now reading uh, Michael's book uh, about that that moment? A turning point. Uh, I remember talking to senior staff, non-commissioned officers, and asking them what they thought of the news reports about a new al-Qaeda emerging in spring of 2014 in Iraq. And they kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, same guys, different, different year, same thing. I don't expect anything different. And then at some point from the spring to the summer, everything changed. And I think you quote General Nagata is saying there was a degree of combat sophistication that was alien to me, even though I spent three years fighting here uh, in the previous decade. Uh, we didn't control that environment anymore, did we, Michael? Uh, no, the U.S. didn't. And what the U.S. lost in the years in which its military was essentially out of Iraq was it lost its situational awareness, not only of the adversary, but importantly, of what was going on within the Iraqi security forces. And the reason Mosul came as such a shock and a surprise to the White House was the U.S. did not understand 
the degree of deterioration of the ISF and and yet and the extent to which it had been um, compromised by the sectarian appointments Maliki made and just what had happened when American forces weren't there to train them on a day-to-day basis. And so this fascinating rapid transformation of American orientation toward Iraq takes place through spring and summer of 2014. Part of this is exemplified, I think, through General Robert Caslin. Uh, early on in the book, he remarked that General Caslin believed he would be the commander of a follow-on force of thousands of troops to train Iraqi forces in Iraq. But the collapse of the status of forces agreement negotiations had instead made him an embassy staffer without an army. Can you develop that for the audience? Well, if you, we flash back to um, 2010 and 2011, and 2010, Mike Barbero, who was then in charge of um, training the Iraqi forces, put together a, um, a briefing at the behest of General Odierno about the capability gaps, what the Iraqis couldn't do if Americans left Iraq, um, and how they needed all this enabling in terms of getting to the fight and intelligence support and logistics. They hadn't practiced combined arms, this and this and the like. So it was their strong recommendation of um, American uh, commanders at CENTCOM, at DOD, and in Iraq, that the U.S. maintain a substantial uh, residual presence under a new sofa to continue to mentor Iraqi forces. One of the people who made that recommendation was Lloyd Austin, who was then the commander in Iraq. And he wanted more than 20,000 American troops to stay there and uh, perform these functions and also help the Iraqis get along with the Kurds and a whole set of functions. Well, that Michael, Gen- General Austin was CENTCOM commander at the time. Is that correct? No, General Austin was the um, Iraq commander at the time in Baghdad. Uh, the CENTCOM commander who shared these views and supported this was Jim Mattis. And the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs at the time was Mike Mullen, Admiral Mike Mullen. And uh, Admiral Mullen actually sent a letter that I note in the book to the White House, a confidential letter, saying that 16,000 troops was really the irreducible um, minimum. And this was like a 12-star letter. This is a letter that was his view, Mattis's view, and Austin's view. Um, and But the White House at that point in time uh, was, uh, number one, we've had no intention of keeping that many troops in Iraq and was in the process of trying to negotiate a SOFA um, uh, diplomatic activity, which it wasn't, uh, which failed due to basically the pop- status of forces, status of forces agreement. And it failed because of basically politicians in Baghdad and politicians in, in, in Washington. Um, but um, what Caslin, when he had been a- appointed, it was with the expectation that he was going to, his expectation, he was going to lead this force of anywhere from 10 to 16 to 20,000 troops that was going to continue to mentor the Iraqi forces, probably do QRF type functions, who knows. That was his goal. And after these talks failed, he went to Iraq anyways, a three-star general heading something called an Office of Security um, Cooperation whose primary task was foreign military sales, but which he also sought to use to continue at least to um, tie into the Iraqi military, develop an intelligence picture and mentor him 
to the degree one could, given that he was essentially an embassy employee and there were no American advisors going out in the battlefield. And so he expected a combat function. Instead, he was given kind of an economic function. I think he wrote that he supervised more than $10 billion in arms sales to the Iraqi government. That's such a significant number. Is this unique to Iraq at this point in time, this much arms sales, or was this common? Well, it, I mean, there's nothing common about Iraq. It was sort of a unique circumstance. But the idea of having a substantial office of security cooperation is not an entirely new one. I mean, there is a fairly sizable one in Ankara. And you, embassies have offices of security cooperation, and they do arms sales, and they can be you know, involved in a, a lot of FMS, depending on what's at stake. But what Kaslan tried to do is use this as a platform to do more than arms sales. He tried to mentor uh, the uh, you know Iraqi defense ministry and, and stay in touch with Iraqi commanders under a set of authorities which uh, constricted over time and limited his uh, freedom of action. He left Iraq as a deeply frustrated officer who um, felt the country was on the wrong path and that he had not been allowed to do as much as he would have hoped to um, to at least uh, mentor the Iraqis during a difficult period. And so the picture you're painting of a three-star army general who's taken up an office in a State Department compound overseeing an economic function uh, brings me to this image of the embassy at this point in time in 2014 as we're transitioning our uh, engagement with Daesh or ISIS. And you, you write that the team initially set up shop in an embassy annex that had once been intended as a school for the children of American diplomats. You're writing about our early military footprint on the Baghdad embassy complex. Well, what was that about? Well, this is after American forces left Iraq um, in 2011 and after ISIS surprised the White House but perhaps not the American special operations community, uh, by taking uh, Mosul, um, uh, President Obama decided uh, to respond. And the initial response was basically to send a very small team there, that included um, Dana Petard, who was an Army uh, two-star, and also uh, uh, a Marine uh, one-star, Robert Castelvi. And they, they came back in to basically do an assessment. How bad is the damage? Is Baghdad going to fall? Um, do we have something to work with here in Iraq in terms of the Iraqi security forces? What's the potential? So they came back in um, to this environment. And I remember uh, uh, Dana Batar told me they wore their uniforms and the um, Iraqi, when they went into some of the Iraqi defense ministry, there was a round of applause because um, the Iraqi military said, oh, the Americans are back. And in the years in which the U.S. had been out of Iraq, U.S. military personnel were not supposed to wear their uniforms in engaging with ministries because the State Department was in charge and we were building a normal relationship with a normal country, just like we had in every... Uh, other part of the world. So they came in and and uh, the base that the U.S. used to occupy across the street, Union 3, was not operable at that point. So they set up in this vast embassy complex that you know well, and that was written during a period of 
great expectations um, in the Bush administration, the largest embassy in the world when the U.S. thought that, or at least the Bush administration thought, that Iraq was going to be a critical long-term uh, ally. And their initial report back to Washington was reassuring in the sense that, hey, Baghdad's not going to fall. There's enough Iraqi troops here that had nothing to do in Mosul. They're very much intact. Um, and there is something to work with. And then the Obama administration took um, the next step, which was embracing uh, what became known as by, with, and through uh, an advisory mission to work with the Iraqi forces. And this was a process that um, took years to uh, fully develop. And you get at the bureaucratic wrangling that took place in these summer 2014 months between specifically state and defense. Uh, you write at one point that the Pentagon and state argued over who would pay the salaries of certain military officers working at Northern command posts in Iraq. Uh, I wonder how disagreement between state and defense or even just working conflict for you uh, looked compared to what had been typically the case in Iraq dating back to the very beginning in 2003 between state and defense? Well, there were a lot of U.S. ambassadors that went through Baghdad and, and a fair number of generals too. But the period in which state and defense worked most closely with each other was the period with General Petraeus and Ryan Crocker. Um, and they, they were a genuine team. But remember, we're talking about um, a period in uh, 2007 and 2008 when uh, the, the, the fate of the country was in jeopardy and the U.S. had mounted a surge of reinforcements to try to reclaim the tactical advantage um, from al-Qaeda in Iraq. And what had happened is after U.S. forces uh, left the State Department, was in ascendancy. They were in charge and the U.S. military at the embassy reported to them. And uh, for some in state, not all, but for some, they were very much trying to prove a point. They were trying to prove that the, they were building a, quote, normal relationship with Iraq, not a one in which the U.S. had a troops and occupation. But also, I think they were trying to tell the military that a state's in charge of this one, you know, stay in your lane. So let's progress forward to eventually uh, the in 2017, the, the battle to retake Mosul uh, from ISIL forces. What changed that allowed that to become at least more of a limited success uh, from, from the just kind of collapse of, of uh, Iraqi forces in 2014? Well, first, the Iraqi forces uh, were re-equipped and trained and um, had some experience under their belt. But on the U.S. side, they went through very important steps to evolve the strategy. Remember that when President Obama sent advisors back to Iraq and after the fall of Mosul and after a new Iraqi government was installed, the vast majority of advisors, basically everybody who was not not in the Delta Force, had to stay within the wire. They were advising remotely. So when Iraqi troops were out in the field, their military advisors would literally be within inside the confines of a base unless they were perhaps members of the soft community. But so the vast majority of the advisors is, is done of expeditionary advisor is done at a distance. It was not a very efficient um, 
approach. Uh, that changed by the time Mosul came around. Um, they um, it took two years, but um, in the summer of uh, 2016, uh, the commander out there was then uh, General McFarland received the authority from General Votel at CENTCOM to send uh, advisors with Iraqi battalions was to cross uh, the Tigris River. So that didn't have to be done remotely because it's really hard to uh, do advising effectively that way. Uh, another thing that changed was um, the uh, structure of the command. Initially, uh, you know, the, the U.S. was unprepared for this war. So Arsent was originally running it, General Terry. He also had all the Arsent functions of taking troops out of um, Afghanistan because um, there was a with modest withdrawal anticipated at the time. And so what changes, they created this dedicated command uh, this Operation Inherent Resolve, and they try to create unity of command. They never fully achieved that, by the way, but Ash Carter, who was then Defense Secretary, tried so that the Syria theater, theater and the Iraqi theater would be under the same, the same commander. Um, it was never fully achieved, but they moved a lot in that. So they had the advisors in the field. They had a new command structure. The air strategy changed. Early on, it was very much focused on tactical objectives near the front lines with the Air Force denigrates as nefarious dirt. They wanted to do deep strike attacks against uh, ISIS command centers and logistics and economic targets in Al-Qaim and Abu Kamal and hit the tanker trucks and go over their banks. And which All of which was, was more possible because ISIS was offering more targets of opportunity they they were they they had a larger infrastructure than you know al-qaeda based previously i mean they were they were assembling you know heavy weaponry and they were assembling large forces and, and things like that i mean isn't that a part of it is because isil tried to try to form as an army as opposed well, to it was, insurgent force isis was a protostate it had a caliphate it had a capital in raqqa it had uh, administrative functions um it was a very organized entity and it could be attacked as a state which ultimately it was. But what I'm saying is that getting the authority for the commanders out in the field to do that took some doing. Right. And initially right, right, it was resisted right. at CENTCOM. Uh, and it took some uh, importuning by the Air Force. They had to gain control, more control over ISR because how you apportion the ISR determines whether you can find the targets in the first place. And so they sent um, AFSENT, the Air Force component of... Um, of um, the CENTCOM sent an intelligence officer to CENTCOM to make the case for doing more deep strike, which meant, hey, guys, you got to give us more ISR so we can find these deep strike targets. And CENTCOM was initially hesitant, resistant to doing it. And one of the guys who was pushing for this also was a CQ Brown, who was an air war commander out in Qatar and now is the head of the Air Force. And uh, David Goldfein, then the Air Force chief of staff, also pushed for this, but there was a lot of pent up frustration on the part of the Air Force that they weren't being allowed to go as deep as they wanted. It got to the point where David Goldfein went to Joe Dunford, then the chairman, and said, let the Air Force run the command. We're not getting anywhere with the Army in charge of this command. Let the Air Force run in the command. It'll be a joint command, but it'll have an Air Force guy in charge. And General Dunford's um, response, and I've touched base with him on this, was, well, thank you very much. Um, we're going to keep things the way they are because the Army had the experience running 
these commands. But by the time the Mosul fight came around, um, the U.S. was doing deep targeting. It was had advisors in the field, though not as far forward as it would eventually have. Um, it was it had it had a better uh, command structure. It had gone through a number of um, important changes, and you have to remember the difficulty of the ch- of the challenge. The U.S. wasn't just sending advisors with one force. It was advising the Iraqi security forces. What are the Iraqi security forces? There are a bunch of things. There's the counterterrorism service. There's the Iraqi army. There's the federal police. They all have separate change of command and report to separate ministries. you got to advise all those different elements. Then there's the Kurdish Peshmerga. They don't report to the Iraqi state at all. They're under their own separate uh, chain. You have to have advisors with them. Then there was this force in Syria that um, uh, was um, Chris Donahue discovered uh, uh, during his Delta days, which became uh, General Muslim, the Syrian Democratic Forces. You're advising all of these disparate forces simultaneously. So the U.S. advisors not only became um, important for calling in airstrikes and assessing the battlefield, they became the glue, the sort of sociological glue that held this campaign together. And it's in, with all of that, uh, it took years to to get to that point, and that's when the U.S. approached uh, the Mosul fight. Yeah, you, you quoted Steve Warren, we're in combat, that's why we all carry guns. He said, it took a while to work back to a, a combat footing uh, in Iraq. But a second ago, you brought up some of the dynamics between senior decision makers. You talked about General Goldfine. You talked about General Dunford. Uh, what was it like at the top? Uh, there are so many names we now all recognize, General Austin, General Mattis. Um, what was the working relationship through the years among these really top senior generals? Well, first off, the injunction from the Obama administration to start was the U.S. was not going to send its own troops directly into ground combat. That was waived on a few occasions. The Delta Force obviously was doing their raids in Iraq and in Syria. And right. things got so dicey in West Mosul that then General Townsend made an exception to that and sent U.S. troops onto the battlefield with tow and javelin missiles to help the Iraqis. But in the main, it was the partners who were doing the combat, and that's um, in terms of direct ground combat. Of course, we're dropping a ton of bombs and artillery and high mars and mortars and all of that, which in my book is combat. But that's how the Obama administration drew the line. In terms of the... Um, uh, the people at the top, um, you know, this war spanned two administrations, started under President Obama, continued under President Trump, and and to some extent under President Biden, because actually, officially, Operation Heron Resolve is still going on today. It's never been closed out, the enemies largely, but not entirely. Right. So there, you know, who was running this war? Um you know, there in terms of uh, by the end of the Obama administration, uh, the advisors pretty much had the authorities they needed. Uh, they didn't have them completely by the start of the Mosul fight, but the Iraqis suffered some setbacks in East Mosul, and that led General Townsend to issue a tactical directive 
that put advisors further forward. They still weren't supposed to be on the front lines where they were supposed to be close to it. So uh, it was tactical directive number one. And that put advisors closer to the action, allowed them to call in airstrikes. And that, so by the end of the Obama administration, by 2017, the basic strategy and the basic uh, structure of, of the U.S. forces there is in place. President Trump inherited this, and contrary to some impressions, he didn't change the strategy. He didn't change the rules of engagement. He basically continued to execute uh, the Obama strategy that he inherited. There were some differences in the degree of micromanagement from the White House, but the strategy didn't change. So that's what happened in Washington. Um, key figures um, who people often don't think of um, really include the folks that were doing the advising in the Mosul arena. And, you know, the common person knows Trump and Biden, but uh, how many have heard of uh, Colonel Pat Work, now a general, who was the uh, advisor in West Mosul to Abdul Amir, the Iraqi commander, an absolutely essential person, both of them, in prosecuting the fight. And in East Mosul was... Uh, Colonel Brett Sylvia from the 101st, now also a general on the Joint Staff. Uh, and he was essential for doing a lot of the interaction uh, with the um, Iraqi commanders. And why was this so important? Because when you have a partner force who's doing the brunt of the fighting and the dying on the ground and making most of the sacrifices, you can't order them around. Uh, they have their own politics and their own agenda. But you can try to lead them in the right direction. And by building up your own credibility with them, but by becoming um, indispensable to their success. And as work would say, his philosophy was deposit, 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 so that he could one day make withdrawals to so the US. If Abdulamir wanted to go to a certain place and carry out an action, the US would try to do the ISR and the air to make that possible. But there came a few times, critical moments in the Mosul fight where the Americans went to the Iraqis behind the scenes and said, hey, you've got to do this completely differently from the way you're planning. And what happened in West Mosul was, and I was there when this happened in a closed meeting with the Iraqi prime minister, was the Americans said, basically was trying to lead them um, to open a second front in Mosul. And so a lot of the key figures, I think, uh, in the um, in the war against ISIS are are people who um, are the advisors and people who the average American probably never even heard of. So some of the uh, partner forces that you mentioned earlier include the the uh, the Kurds, the Peshmerga, the um, what became the Syrian Democratic Forces, the YPG. Talk about the role and relationship of the Kurds and how that became really complicated with the relationship with, with Turkey and Syria and ultimately Trump pulls forces back, which exposes the Kurds to, uh, to retaliation from, from the, from the Turks. Can you talk about how that dynamic complicated those relationships and what, what the Kurds role was as, as an ally in the region? So, there are different alliances among the Kurds, and they can't be painted with one brush. Um, I'm, you may recall there was a press conference. I remember at the United Nations I was at, and there was a Kurdish reporter, and President Trump referred to him as Mr. Kurt. But there, there are many different 
Kurds and in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, there was the KDP, which is really the dominant party under the Barzanis. And then the Suleimania, there was the PUK, which was under the Talibanis. And they were sort of rival poles of, of influence. Well, the U.S. military had to deal with both of them. And it was through the Kurds in uh, Suleimania, Lahore Talibani, uh, made an introduction for Chris Donahue to the Kurds in Syria, uh, which were then known as the YPG. And it was this commander, uh, Maslum. And that meeting happened in August 2014. And in that meeting, um, then Colonel Donahue, now Lieutenant General Donahue, the head of the 18th Airborne Corps, um, uh, put forth a strategy. He said, we have to go into Syria to cut off the flow of foreign fighters. We don't have a natural ally in Syria. There's no government there and we don't that we recognize. And you, the YPG, could be our partner force. And the, and the name of this operation was Talanenfel. And the idea was to work with this partner force, push to the Euphrates River, and then in Donahue's mind, head south to Raqqa and uh, finish off the ISIS capital. What really was fascinating for me, and I had no idea about this until I dove into this book, was how early this strategy happened, August 2014, just weeks after the fall of Mosul. That's when the U.S. soft community developed this strategy, which was later approved in Washington at the highest levels. Well, there's a complication with this strategy. There's animosity between President Erdogan uh, and the YPG and the, the um, Syrian Kurds. And so there was a big issue within the Obama administration and to some extent within the Trump administration about whether to arm the arm them. Could you arm them? But you had to arm them because they had to take Raqqa, which is a heavily fortified city, and you couldn't just do it with light arms. And the Obama administration was always... Um, trying to strike a balance between not offending Turkey, but enabling the YPG. But finally, in its last week in office, days before President Obama is supposed to hand over authority to President Trump, incoming President Trump, he decided we should arm them. But it was so late in the game that the decision would actually have to be executed by his successor, uh, Donald Trump. So what happened was President Obama said, I'm going to um, give my best advice to uh, the incoming president in the limousine heading to the inaugural swearing in, which he did do because for this book purposes, I had to go to a former senior Obama official and say, did this happen? And they said, yes, it did. And so he, and in the ride up to the swearing in, he said, you know, these Kurds in Syria, we got to work with them, fight ISIS. Trump apparently took that on board because when he was in the reviewing stand for the inaugural parade, he turned to Jim Mattis and said, the Kurds are great fighters. And Mattis, this just hits Mattis out of the blue. They're watching a parade of bands from like Iowa. Now Trump's talking about Kurds are great. He doesn't know what he's talking about, why he's talking about. And he goes, yeah, right. Kurds are great fighters. Uh, he didn't know anything about uh, what uh, Obama had conveyed uh, to Trump until I told him, because I learned it through a separate conversation. 
But the both administrations eventually decided we didn't have any other uh, force in Syria to work with other than the Syrian Kurds. The problem was this really stuck in the craw of the Turks, who at a number of um, occasions intervened in northern Syria against the Kurds, upsetting the whole campaign. And by the way, as we speak, they're threatening to do it yet again um, with whatever consequences that may happen. So the challenge was, how do you work with the Syrian Kurds to help them fight ISIS without so alienating the Turks that they intervene in northern Syria and start fighting your partner? And in the end, it, it only partly worked because the Turks did intervene. And uh, a lot of diplomacy was uh, invested to keep them uh, from intervening too deeply and to enabling the ISIS campaign to continue. And so, Michael, you've said that when President Trump took office, he didn't change anything immediately about the strategy in place or left to him by President Obama. I wonder over the course of President Trump's administration, uh, what did change and what became decisive acts against ISIS? Well, that's a very good question. So the reason I say that is during the campaign, um, candidate Trump kept saying he was going to take the gloves off. He was going to knock the heck out of ISIS, except he didn't use the word heck. He um, he was going to go after their families. He was going to unleash the commanders. Uh, none of that happened. Uh, but something did happen which is when you had a, a national security advisor like H.R. McMaster, you have a general who's been there. And what, what happened, in which was actually a positive step in the Trump administration, was they really reduced the degree of micromanagement that had been embraced uh, by the, um, their predecessor. So, uh, for example, at the very end of the Obama administration, while the advisors were out and about and the war was pretty much going the way the military wanted to fight it. Um, there still was a lot of, there were force manning levels for how many troops we could have in Syria. I think it was 503, not 502, uh, or not 504, 503. And uh, there were force uh, manning levels. And there was also all sorts of restrictions. So, for example, the um, General uh, Townsend wanted to put Apaches in in Syria to support the offense of Taraka. And the White House eventually settled on a formula where there could be three helicopters during a single 72-hour period, and then they'd have to leave and go back to Erbil, and then another three could come in. So Obama was, um, you know, and under Susan Rice, was often trying to strike a balance between fighting ISIS and uh, avoiding getting too heavily engaged. That was uh, a big concern. Well, when Trump came in, uh, the strategy seemed the same. The ROE didn't change, but that kind of micromanagement went away. And McMaster um, uh, uh, told me, I don't need to tell you know the military how many helicopters or pieces of artillery they can pull into Syria. I'm giving that to Mattis, and Mattis says I'm giving it to the field commanders. And as a consequence of this reduced oversight in the White House, the uh, ironic outcome was the Trump administration carried out the Obama strategy more efficiently than Obama himself, because the strategy was the same, but the micromanagement was reduced. Now, I have to say, 
a, there's a huge caveat here, which was on two occasions, Trump, unadvised by his commanders, um, ordered troops out of Syria and upset a whole lot of military preparations and arrangements and had to be talked out of it. And that was a downside of how Trump managed things. So at times he he helped by staying out of it and not being too engaged and letting the, the fighting continue. And other times he intervened rather impulsively to the detriment of the effort and had to be talked talked out of it, which is really what happened on two occasions. Michael, there's there's been a trend in a few of your comments about affinity you seem to have for people who have been there commanded on the ground. You talked about H.R. McMaster didn't need to get into the tactical details. He trusted his subordinates to do that. Uh, it's kind of your story as a journalist as well, and how much time you've spent forward with the troops. The Is it three previous books you've written with former Lieutenant General yeah, three Trainer? prior books for General Trainer. He's passed away. But but yes, we did three books on these wars, and this was this is the fourth, which I did solo, but in the same spirit. And so, what is it for you about people who have been there that makes them different? I guess as decision makers. Well, I think it's important to be there, and that doesn't mean you have to be in the military. I mean, like I, someone like Ryan Crocker, for example, uh, or uh, you know that, or Stu Jones, for example. Who another ambassador? Ambassadors who's Robert Ford, who is our ambassador in Syria, who get out and about in the field, have a, a good feel for the country, and have been in crisis situations, uh, bring something to decision making that's very valuable, which is how things work and how things don't work. And sometimes there's a tendency in Washington to become isolated. Uh, from that. And this is a subject for a different conversation and probably a different author. But I have to think that the White House decision making on Afghanistan under the Biden administration would have been vastly improved if they had had somebody who had been out in Kabul in a civilian and military capacity in the inner circle in the White House, shaping those um, decisions on how to go about withdrawing. But it, it's important and I think it's important for a, an author and a um, journalist, too. And what I've um, strived to do to the best of my ability and as best as I could um, was to go back and forth. So I would spend a lot of time out in these wars and embedded to the extent they would allow it. Um, and uh, the U.S. military didn't allow it in OIR, but the Kurds and the uh, Iraqis did. Um, uh, you know, soaking up what was actually happening and getting a feel for it and building relationships and, and coming to uh, my own conclusions and then go back to Washington and tap into the policy debate and say, well, what are they talking about here? And sometimes the policy debate in Washington had something to do with what was happening on the battlefield and sometimes it didn't. And I, I kind of built my career around the principle that uh, you can't cover defense solely from the Pentagon unless you're covering procurement. Um, and even then, I don't think you can because you have to see how these systems work in practice. And you can't cover it solely from the battlefield because then you don't understand um, Washington's role in policy formulation. You really have to uh, somehow find a way to integrate the two and go back and forth. Uh 
physically and also conceptually. And in the reporting, that's what I tried to do. I tried to talk to every single policymaker, the seniors I could get to, who was involved in these things, sometimes multiple times. And I tried to talk to everybody I could find who was out there in the field with time and resources available from you know the general down to um, the non-commissioned officer or the you know who was uh, out in Mosul doing stuff and out of this mosaic I tried to put together a, a comprehensive picture of what happened and all the complicated interactions between all these individual decisions and that's that raises the next question for me, that comprehensive picture. You've been doing this for 30 plus years, started with the General's War, Cobra II, the end game, now here with Degrade and Destroy. Anyone Of anyone in journalism, it seems that you have been the one to connect the ground truth with DC politics and decision-making for so many years. Tell us, what's the current state of our engagement in the Middle well, East? Well, uh, it's an excellent question. I'm not sure... I have um, a, a good answer for you, but I feel that um, right now, as you know, the Pentagon is very much focused on its national defense strategy, which is China is the, is the pacing threat, as Lloyd Austin calls it, and Russia is the acute threat. It's an interesting finesse because acute doesn't tell us how long they expect the Russian threat to last. I lived in Russia for four years. I was in Chechnya with the Russian army. Uh, didn't write a book about it, thought about it, but didn't. And um, I don't think the Russian threat is going away anytime soon, um, despite their clumsy performance uh, in Ukraine. But um, there's a whole rest of the world out there. The Middle East, there are a lot of ungoverned spaces. Those dangers aren't going away because... We chose to direct our strategy elsewhere. And so this gets an important point that I try to make in the book, which is what are the lessons of this conflict against ISIS for the future? Is this just a one-off? Okay, we did that. It's over with now. Um, who cares? Or is it? does it have some lessons? And I believe it does because with our focus on China, and our secondary focus of necessity on Russia, still the only country that has a nuclear arsenal that poses a true existential threat to the United States, we still have to attend to a whole array of possible uh, threats in, in the Middle East and other parts of the world. And you can't say this is militant threats never going to uh, arise again, but the days in which we sent hundreds of thousands of troops out there to fight them are gone. So how are we going to have to do this? It's going to have to be some variation of the strategy we did in against ISIS by, with, and through, by the partner, with American and allied support, through some sort of policy and legal framework. Small teams of advisors, small footprint, coupled with a partner force, drawing on USISR and air power. It's a pretty lethal combination, and it can accomplish a lot. And you can do that without a massive uh, footprint. That's got to be a way forward. And I would say it's not only a possible way forward in the Middle East. If you think of uh, even Ukraine is a kind of a variation of by, with, and through. Yes, we don't have advisors on the ground now, 
but we did. We had the 10th Special Forces Group training the Ukrainian army for a long time. That's why they're decent. Um, yes, we're not carrying out the airstrikes, but we're giving them intelligence and we're giving them the munitions and we're giving them aircraft parts, or at least the, the West is, to get planes up in the air and, and we're giving them um, uh, anti-ship missiles. That could be thought of is a kind of a, that's a point that Joe Votel made to me, that could be point of as a variation of by, with, and through. So it's an approach that can be adapted to fight militant threats and to fight peer adversaries who have nuclear weapons, but we don't want to up, go against them directly because of that nuclear arsenal. We want to work through partners on the ground. So I, a point I make, and uh, I don't know if people will agree, but it, it's in the epilogue, is that uh, there are aspects of this strategy that have utility for future operations and future conflicts, including those we, we can't even begin to foresee at this point. Well, I, I think that's a great place to end it for now. The book is Degrade and Destroy, the Inside Story of the War Against the Islamic State from Barack Obama to Donald Trump. Michael Gordon, thank you so much for talking with us. I hope you come back and join us again. Right. Thank you for all the time. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news for Real Clear Defense Editor David Craig, John Waters, and everyone here at Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen.